0: Well, good morning, Cornerstone. It is good to gather as the house of the Lord with you again. Uh, when Pastor Paul uh, invited me to preach a few weeks ago, he noted that he would be listening via live stream while he was driving through the mountains of Montana with his son, Max, and with his dad. And so he said, Jesse, don't be boring or I'll crash into the side of a mountain in Montana and die. So, no pressure this morning. So with that aim in mind of not being boring and causing um, our beloved lead pastor, Paul, uh, to crash into the side of a mountain, uh, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we need you this morning. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to open up the eyes of our heart to receive your living and implanted word in Jesus' name. And everyone said, what does it mean to be near the kingdom? About two months ago, the Lord opened a door for my wife to counsel the teenage daughter of one of the neighbors in our neighborhood in Kentucky. She had a traumatic experience a few years ago and was seeking professional help. Now, Bethany and I had been praying for an opportunity to share the gospel with this family, and so immediately we began praising God. Thank you, Lord, for this chance to minister to this lady's emotional brokenness, but even more importantly, her spiritual brokenness. But when the Lord, or when the Lord brought her and she arrived For her counseling session, and Bethany began speaking, something was off. The prayer that we thought was answered seemed to actually be unanswered. The daughter was disinterested in Bethany's counsel and, especially, disinterested in hearing about how Jesus could help walk her through her trauma. The more Bethany talked about Jesus, the more the walls went up and the more disengaged she became. In that moment, Bethany began to question, God, I I thought this was supposed to be an answer to prayer. What are you doing, Lord? You've clearly brought this girl here to hear the gospel, but you haven't prepared her heart to receive it. What are you doing, Lord? Well, all of a sudden in the counseling session, Bethany looked over to the girl's mom who had been sitting beside her and her mom was fixated on Bethany. She was hanging off of her every word, soaking up all she had to say, engaging with further questions. As her daughter was closing off, she was opening up. The more Bethany shared about Jesus, the more receptive, the more responsive her mom became. And after two hours of counseling the daughter, the mom was in tears, thanking Bethany, asking to meet up again. It turns out it was the mom who needed this counseling session. But the Lord really knew, didn't he? Have you ever been in a situation like that? where you can say the same thing, and it lands on people in completely different ways. You ever been there before? In the Bible, we are familiar with the categories of saved and perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. In other words, when we share the gospel— There's this aroma that goes out and smells differently depending upon the kind of heart that it lands on. To those who are being saved, it smells sweet like honey, but to those who are perishing, it smells like stinking trash in their nostrils. They're repulsed by it. We're familiar with those general categories of being saved and perishing in the Bible. But what if I told you that there was a third category in the New Testament that Jesus calls near the kingdom, near the kingdom. These people have not yet entered the kingdom of God. They're not yet saved. But they are beginning to show signs of receptivity and agreement with the words of Christ. Like the mom that Bethany counseled, they've not yet entered the narrow gate. They've not yet humbled themselves in brokenness over their sins. They've not yet trusted in Christ alone. But they do have this profound openness to the gospel, a softness to the words of Christ. God's in the process of tilling the soil in their hearts. but They've not yet received the seed of his word. They're standing at the gates, but they've not entered into his kingdom. In the text that we're going to read today, we're going to meet a scribe who agrees with Jesus' teaching. Miraculously, his heart is the opposite of his contemporary Pharisees who harden themselves against the Lord. And this guy demonstrates openness to the words of Christ. He seems to have a soft heart to agree with the living and implanted word. But although he is an admirer of Christ's teaching, he is not yet a recipient of his gospel. Like a hesitant patient who is handed medicine from their doctor, he agrees that the prescription works. He affirms that this pill is the real deal that's going to cure his disease, but he hasn't yet ingested the medication. He hasn't received it into himself and experienced its benefits. The Lord has granted this scribe, in this text we're about to read, enough light to see that his message is true. But he's not entered in. Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You know, one of the reasons why we planted a church in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, is because there is a great need to reach these sorts of people. Most new converts at Fireside Baptist Church down in Elizabethtown were baptized into membership out of this scribe's situation. Elizabethtown is full of men and women like this scribe. We're a major hub of cultural Christianity. Whenever we think of Kentucky, you probably think of the words Bible Belt or reached or largely saved people live down there. But that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, that label Bible Belt often masks much of the hidden lostness, really scribal lostness in our area. Many have heard the name of Jesus and even agree with his words, but very few have entered his kingdom. In fact, very few have actually heard the true gospel. They've heard that Jesus can make your life better, that Jesus can make you healthy and wealthy and happy with a bit of positive thinking. But most have never been called to repent of their sin or trust in Christ's finished work on the cross. Think of Jesus like this self-help coach that can make good people better. But Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to make dead people alive. Most have trusted in other places to secure their salvation. Most believe that they're saved because they're politically conservative. They're not like these liberals over here. And some others think they're saved because they're moral people. They don't smoke, they don't chew, and they don't hang out with those who do. But these folks the Bible says are separated from God. And if they die in their sin, they will be no better off than any unreached person around the globe. They will suffer the same judgment of God in outer darkness forever. That is why we're laboring in Elizabethtown, to see that lostness reached. And like this scribe, they are loved by Jesus. And Jesus calls us to love them like he did. Today, we're going to discover what it means to be near the kingdom, and I want us to be asking this question to ourselves this morning Could I be near the kingdom? Could I be near the kingdom this morning? That's what this text is about, so let's dig in together. Hear now the word of the Lord in Mark 12, beginning in verse 28. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there's no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. And Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that this Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. In this text, we learn three things about those who are near the kingdom. We learn that they grasp the basics of the kingdom. Second, they agree with the king's words. And third, they still need to receive the king. They grasp the basics, they agree with the king's words, but they still need to receive the king. So let's dig in together. First, we see that those near the kingdom grasp the basics. Of the kingdom, can we say it together? They grasp the basics of the kingdom. We can see this in what the scribe says to Jesus. Now, in context, in the context of Mark's gospel, the Pharisees have approached Jesus twice with hostile questioning, and now a third time, the Sadducees are testing him. But as Jesus answers the Sadducees, one of the scribes eavesdrops in, and he is impressed with what he hears. Jesus is answering biblically. He's quoting the Old Testament and he's doing a good job. Instead of writing Jesus off like his colleagues, this scribe is hungry for more. Apparently, even the scribes, those Old Testament professors of Israel, can see that Jesus speaks truth when they're not motivated by hubris and jealousy. And so he trails Jesus after the conversation to examine him further. He says this to Jesus in verse 28. What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than this. So Jesus says, listen, if the entire law was a coat rack, it would have two coat hooks upon which everything hangs. Love God and love neighbor. Everything else depends upon those two foundational commands. Take the Ten Commandments, for instance. You can't obey the first four without loving God, and you can't obey the last six without loving your neighbor. The first four are directed towards loving God. Say them with me if you know them. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Right? That's, that is to honor God who rested on the Sabbath day of creation. All four of those commands are directed at loving God. And then the final six commandments are aimed at our neighbors. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. And don't covet someone else's stuff. If you want to obey God, you've got to love God vertically and horizontally towards God and each other. That is the heart and essence and core of the Old Testament law. Every Jewish person knew this. Every morning they'd wake up and chant the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4 which says, hear O Israel, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And so if you wanted to be a faithful Orthodox Jew, if you wanted to score 100% on your Old Testament test, you would have to know that this is the heart of the law, love of God. That's the basics. And it just so happens that these basic tenets of the Old Testament law are the basics of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed this new covenant kingdom does not contradict the law, it fulfills it. The rule and reign that Christ brings upon the earth fulfills all the law's requirements, it upholds its messianic predictions, and it perpetuates the very heart of the old covenant. Only now under Christ's kingdom are we empowered to love God and our neighbors from the heart. Expectations all anticipations of the law land on Jesus. Because the heart of both the Old and New Covenants is the same. We're called to love God and neighbor. That's the fundamental continuity between the law of Moses and the law of Christ. And so in terms of content, how does the scribe's interpretation of the law measure up to Jesus' teaching? Well, let's see. Look down at verse 32. The scribe said to him, "Right, teacher, you have truly Stated That he is one. There's no one beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so in other words, the scribe understands the basics. And as a result, Jesus tells him, you are not far from the kingdom. Why? Because those who are near the kingdom grasp the foundations of God's word. They may have grown up in church. They may have heard sermons preached Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. They may have heard Bible verses read or seen flannel graph boards back in the day or Veggie Tales Bible stories in my day. They may have been to VBS or to Bible camp or sung scripture-laden songs. They may know the basics. That is where this scribe is at. And Jesus says that he's near the kingdom. Friend, if that is you this morning, If you know some things about the Bible and Jesus, maybe you even know the heart and substance of his kingdom teaching, like this scribe, you may be near the kingdom. I would imagine that this church is full of children and teenagers who are near the kingdom. Our church back home in Kentucky is almost 70% children. Our ratio of children to adults is almost three to one. Sometimes I look out over our congregation and it feels like I'm speaking to a room full of kiddos, which is wonderful, praise the Lord. But I know that even though our kiddos can sing the songs and recite scripture verses, even answer Bible questions correctly, a lot of those children haven't made professions yet. They are there because their parents bring them to church faithfully so, as God has called them to. But until each of those children makes a personal decision to repent of their sins and trust in Christ as their Lord, they are not yet members of the kingdom of God. We're not Presbyterian at Fireside, or else we would have a lot of members uh, at Fireside Baptist Church, non communing members. These are near it, like the scribe. So we need to be praying for our children. Amen? Pray for the children in your own household. Pray for the children in this house of the Lord that every single one of them who's here week after week learning the basics of the kingdom would enter in through genuine repentance and faith. Don't mistake simply knowing the basics about the kingdom with entering it. Let's pray for them. That's the first thing we learn about those near the kingdom. They understand the basics. But more than that, we see that those near the kingdom agree with the king's words. Let's say it together. They agree with the king's words. Notice here that this man did not only agree with Jesus about his content, his theological point. The text seems to indicate that his heart was inclined towards his words, towards listening to him. We can see this in three places. First, in verse 28. The scribe had heard Jesus correcting the Sadducees' disbelief in the resurrection. And the text says this about the scribe in verse 28. And recognizing that he had answered them well. Notice here that the scribe's heart is responding to Jesus' answer. He's not agitated at Jesus like his fellow Pharisees. He's not resolving to plot a murder against Christ, this teacher, like his jealous colleagues rather he simply recognizes that Jesus answers well and inquires further. Friends, that is the mark of someone near the kingdom. They've a softened heart towards the words and person of Jesus. We can see this again in verse 32. The scribe says to Jesus, would you look there with me? Verse 32, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there's no one else besides him. In other words, the scribe says, you've spoken the truth about God and his law. He agrees with God about his word. And as a result of his agreement, Jesus commends the man in verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Beloved, this man was near the kingdom because he agreed with the words of the king. Some of us haven't even gotten that far yet but those who who are near the kingdom have. Only two chapters ago in Mark 10, we see someone else approach Jesus and agree with his words. Do you remember this guy? The rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus? How can I enter your kingdom? I know that you've got these words that I need to listen to. You have the words of eternal life. What do I do, Jesus? Jesus. And when Jesus calls him to give up his idol of wealth to follow him, how does the rich young ruler respond? He walks away sad, doesn't he? Why is that? Because he concurs with Christ that entering the kingdom comes at a cost. He agrees with Jesus that discipleship is costly, but a cost that he's unwilling to pay. The rich young ruler was near the kingdom, beloved. But his wealth and possessions had such a grip on his heart that they choked out the seed of the gospel planted in his life. He's unwilling to obey his king when he asks him to give his riches up. Love for lesser things inhibits Christ's lordship in our lives. Friends, this morning, do you concur with Jesus' words like this scribe? When you hear the word of the Lord, do you agree with Jesus that he's right? How does your heart respond when you read the Bible or what you heard preached on Sundays or what you sing in worship when you hear that you are a sinner who's broken God's law, who's rightly abiding under his wrath, and who deserves to be punished by eternal torment for your sin? Do you humbly bow before those truths in the Bible? Do you agree with God about his assessment of your spiritual condition? That's great if you do, but what do you do with it from there? Do you submit your life to him, no matter what the earthly cost? Agreeing with Jesus is necessary for entering the kingdom, but just agreeing with the truth isn't enough. Mere mental assent to what you read in the Bible is only enough to bring you near the kingdom's gates, not to usher you in. In the book, Pilgrim's Progress, the protagonist named Christian meets a man named Evangelist. Has anybody here read Pilgrim's Progress? I feel like Pastor Paul has gotten to you guys. Pilgrim's Progress, good job. When Christian approaches the Wicked Gate, a man named Worldly Wise Man entices Christian to take up residence in a city near the gate. Do you remember this scene, all you Pilgrim's Progress readers? You don't have to enter through the gate to be saved, worldly wise man promised, Christian. All you have to do is dwell in the nearby city of morality. Through self-righteousness, you can achieve what the gate will procure for you without the cost of discipleship. You don't have to actually enter through the gate. Through your good works, instead, you can scrub your guilty slate clean and be relieved of the burden that's on your back. But thankfully, as Christian approached the city of morality, he was rescued by evangelists who warned him that this city would be destroyed by fire like the city whence he began his pilgrimage. If Christian remained in the city of morality, even while agreeing with evangelists about his word, he would be destroyed in the coming judgment and cut off from the celestial city. Friends, agreeing with the words of Jesus can get you near the kingdom. It can get you close to his counsel. It can get you proximate to his presence. It can even bring some temporal blessings because his ways are right and they lead to life. But it cannot bring you salvation. Dwelling in the city of morality will finally condemn those who dwell in it because no one gets saved by their own morality. That's not how it works. No one gets saved by how good they are. They only get saved by how good Jesus was for you and trusting in it. The Bible tells us that our house, our our life is like a house that's on fire. Because we have all sinned, the judgment of God is upon our lives. And oftentimes people will try to ameliorate this issue by making that house more presentable. Oftentimes people will, you know, will try to wash the floors of our house, scrub the dishes of our house, vacuum the carpets of our house. We try to clean up our lives. But none of those things, let me repeat, none of those things can put the fire out. It doesn't matter how much you scrub your life and make yourself more presentable to God, none of that can put out the fire of God's judgment against your sin. The only thing that can rescue you is the firefighter that God's sending into your house to save you. And that firefighter is God's own son, Jesus Christ. At great cost to himself, Jesus rescues us from our burning house and transfers us into a house that's safe from the fire of judgment. In the process, he dies in the fire of God that was coming upon our lives on our behalf for our sins. Friends, you can know a lot of true things about God and yet trust in all the wrong places, like your own good works, your own morality, your own scrubbing of your household. And none of that can rescue you from God's judgment any more than scrubbing dishes can save you from a house fire. Only trusting the firefighter can save you. Even the demons know true things about God and they agree with him. They shudder and they cower before those truths, but demons are not saved. We need more than demonic affirmation of propositional truth about Jesus because agreeing with the king isn't enough to get you into his kingdom. Entering in requires something much more foundational to happen. If you're near the kingdom this morning, if this is you, then scripture says that there is one thing you lack. You lack. You need to receive the king. Can we say it together? Receive the king. Unless the scribe identifies Jesus for who he is and then receives him for who he is, he will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, unless you grasp Jesus for who he truly is and receive him, you will remain at the gates and never enter into his kingdom. We can see this in verse 35. We're immediately following Jesus' commendation of the scribe. He begins teaching in the temple, and he shares about his identity. Look there with me in verse 35. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. And so immediately Jesus puts a question to the crowds to reveal his identity. Why is that? Why does Jesus do that? Well, it's because Jesus wants the scribe that he's just spoken to to enter into his kingdom. Identifying and receiving Jesus for who he truly is, is the medicine by which this scribe will be saved. In fact, that's why Jesus quotes what the scribe says in verse 35. Jesus wants the scribe to pay attention to what he is lacking, namely his knowledge of Jesus' identity. Only knowing and receiving Christ for who he truly is can cause you to enter his kingdom. And so if that's true, then perhaps the most important question that we could ever ask of ourselves is who does Jesus reveal himself to be? Who is Jesus? If you're near the kingdom today, the only way to find salvation for your sins is to see him and receive him. So who is he? Well, Jesus reveals himself in this text as both David's son and David's Lord. Jesus quotes Psalm 110.1, which King David wrote a thousand years ago at this point in time. David was the king who received the promise of God that one of his sons would reign forever and ever. All Israel was looking forward to a day when an anointed king would arrive to crush the enemies of God, restore the fortunes of his people and usher in a permanent kingdom. Everyone knew that the son of David's line would sit on the throne and displace God's enemies and place them under his feet. But in Psalm 110, David says something curious about his son. He prophesies by his spirit that his son is also his Lord. Look there with me again at Psalm 110, 1, which is quoted in Mark 12. The Lord said to who? My Lord, my Lord. Now in the original Hebrew, the text reads, Yahweh says to my Lord. That first word may be in all caps in some of your translations as a euphemism for the divine name. The first word Yahweh is is Yahweh, and the second is Adonai. You may have heard the word Adonai uh, before. That I ending on Adonai Adonai adds the suffix my, um, as in my Lord. And so David prophesies that his son is his Lord. One of his descendants is his master. What on earth is he talking about? First off, how can it be that David's son is greater than David? Everyone knew in the ancient Near East that the father was always greater than the son. And second, how can it be that David refers to his son presently as my Lord, as if he's already in existence? How can it be that the Messiah would be both a son of David and greater than him? Jesus proposes this mystery to the crowds, and it silences them. Why? Because the mystery is only resolved in him. In Jesus Christ, we see someone who is fully a man. He descended from David through his adopted father, Joseph, but Jesus is also so much more than merely a son of David. He is also the son of God. With respect to his person, he is God the Son. Mark reveals his paradoxical identity in the very first verse of Mark. He says in Mark 1:1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, on the one hand, This is Jesus Christ, okay? He is truly a man. And yet, on the other hand, he is the Son of God. He's truly God. In chapters 1, 9, and 12, the Father acclaimed it. In chapters 3 and 5, the demons recognize it. In chapter 4, the high priest will question it. And in chapter 5, the centurion will proclaim it. Jesus is the Son of God. No one saw this coming. None of the Jews expected God to do this. No one imagined that the promised human king would be God incarnate. No one ever dreamed that God would make himself take on human flesh and become one of us, to be born into the very family and lineage of David. And yet this mystery had been hiding in plain sight here in Psalm 110 for a thousand years. How is it that Jesus did not foresee that God would become a man? The Jews, I should say, did not foresee that God would become a man. How is it that those who were so well-versed in the Bible, who memorized the Bible, couldn't anticipate God's plan for the most important event in human history? How could this mystery have remained hidden in plain sight? Well, 2 Corinthians 3 tells us. It says in verse 14, But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it's removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. In other words, The mystery of the gospel that God would become flesh has been veiled to the hearts of the Jews. That's why they couldn't see it. But when we turn to Jesus in faith, that veil is removed. The scales fall off. They can finally see when they turn to Jesus, the king in all of his beauty. They can identify him and receive him for who he truly is as both the son of David and God's son. And when we turn to Jesus, likewise, in faith, the same thing happens to us. We can see him with the eyes of faith for who he truly is, the veil lifts. We see what John MacArthur describes when he says this, the eternal, transcendent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God became a human being. The infinite one became finite. The eternal one entered time. The invisible became visible. The personal God came into the world. He became a man. The truth that God became flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, is the most important truth of all truth. It's the only truth that can save us from eternal hell. God took on a second nature, not mingled, but fused together in individual oneness in the person of his son. And so although he was creator of the world, he was born a baby in a manger. Although he continued to uphold the universe by the word of his power, he needed his mom to teach him how to walk. Although he knew all things, he now needed to learn. Although he had all power, he was now weak. Although he owned all things, he now had to earn an income with his dad as a carpenter's apprentice. Although he was creator, he became part of creation. God became One of us. He wrapped himself in the flesh of his most prized creation, humankind. What do we sing together? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? God became killable so that he could die for you and me on the cross. Have you considered this? What do we say together at Christmas time when we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, hail incarnate deity. In Jesus Christ, we see a human being who is also the eternal God. Colossians 2, 2 9 says this about Jesus For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so the word became flesh. The light of God entered the darkness of the sinful world and became a human being. Although from the time of David to the time of Jesus, God's people waited for a thousand years, God did not break his promise. No, God put flesh and bones on his promise in the person of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 says that this humble act of incarnation culminated in the cross. Why did Jesus have to die on a cross as a human being? Well, to pay for the sins that we committed against God. The perfect lamb had to be slain as our substitute or else we would be slain at the final judgment. He who knew no sin had to become our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians 5. What does that mean? It means that all who look to this God-man in faith, a great exchange will occur for them. We will trade our sins for his righteousness. All of his perfect works will be credited to our spiritual bank account by faith. And all of our sins will be credited to his and paid in full on the cross of Christ so that we might be saved. That's God's plan for your salvation. So unless you receive this Jesus, this firefighter that God has sent into your burning house, this God-man who took on your sin and died as your substitute, you will remain outside of the kingdom. It all comes down to how we respond to Jesus. Maybe you're like the scribe in this story today. You know the heart of the law. Perhaps you've grown up in church. Maybe you even agree with Jesus about most of his teaching. If you're that person today, the Bible says that you may be near the kingdom. You're at its very gates, but you've not entered in. You're still on the outside. Right now, the Bible says the gates are open. (laughs) Today is the day of salvation. If you know the basics of Jesus' teaching and you agree with what you read in the Bible, I urge you, I urge you, take the next step. Repent of your sins. Trust in the only one who can rescue you from the judgment of God. Commit to following him in humble obedience as your savior who's king over your life. Receive him and receive his rule over every square inch of your being because the day is coming when those open gates will close, the Bible says. And all those who have not entered in will be locked out into utter darkness, where, where Matthew 5 says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Receiving Jesus is not a small matter. It is a matter of eternal life or eternal death. It's a matter of heaven and hell, enjoying your creator in paradise or suffering God's righteous judgment against your sin. Identifying Jesus rightly is a matter of life and death. And so Jesus identifies himself for you. He shows you that he's God, that he's your creator over heaven and earth. He shows you that he's David's son and David's Lord. And if you repent of this substitutionary sacrifice that God provides, he will be your savior. We're not told how the scribe responded to Jesus. We don't know whether or not he made it into the kingdom. I really hope he did. We don't know whether or not he remained at the gates and he was tragically shut out on his last day. But I do know this. If you are near the kingdom of today, you can still receive the king and you must receive the king. You must receive his rule and reign over your heart and life. The son of David is not just a man. He is God and he has every claim over every square inch of your life. There's a reason why there's no ending to the scribe's story. It's because we are the scribe in this story. The decision to receive the king or remain near to his kingdom is a decision that we are called to make. What will you do with Jesus? Would you submit to him today? Would you repent and believe on his finished work? Because that's how those who are near the kingdom enter in. That's how those who are outside the gate are welcomed home. That's how those dwelling in the city of morality enter the celestial city through trusting in Jesus as your King and Lord. He is the narrow gate because Jesus is the gospel. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves and to pay for what we did do in his body on the cross. Lord, I want to ask if there is anyone here who has realized perhaps for the first time that they are near the kingdom, but not in it. Oh God, I ask that you would draw them to yourself. Help them see Jesus as all they need. Help them look away from their self-righteousness and look to Christ's perfect righteousness accomplished on their behalf. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.